Welcome to the Innovation Conversation, a podcast about innovators, both in business and real life. Hosted by myself, Ricardo Pesqual, and Harry McDonough. Today's episode is sponsored by Hyperskill. Hyperskill is a learning and training platform that enables people from all over the world to learn new tech skills. If you're looking to learn new tech skills, this is a platform to choose. You can find out more about them on hyperskill.org. Today, we're talking with Tom Lawrence, founder and CEO of MVPR, a PR automation platform for startups and SMEs from all over the world. All right, and welcome, Tom, to the Innovation Conversation. Uh, we're joined, obviously, by Harry, the co-host, uh, and we kind of want to know more about your company. So do you want to tell us all about MVPR? Did I pronounce them correctly? And, and what do you guys do? Yeah, thanks, Ricardo. Um, thanks for having me on, firstly. Um, uh, yeah, sure. So the company, um, so my background's in PR. I've been in PR mm -hmm. for nearly 10 years. Uh -huh. Um, and I worked, um, for boutique agencies. I worked with startups. I worked as a kind of consultant to early stage startups back before it was cool to be a startup in sort of 2014, mm -hmm. 15. Um, and then most recently I went to a company called Edelman, um, back in 2018. And I was brought into Edelman to help them create their offering for startups. Um, and so Edelman's one of, I think, maybe the largest PR agency in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think at the time they recognized this opportunity to work with scaling companies in a slightly different way to the way that they worked with the you know, AstraZeneca's and the uh, mm -hmm. Bosch's and the yeah uh, Ferreros of this world, much larger yeah. companies. Um, and they wanted to work in a leaner way. And of course, kind of, I think, work with some of the future uh, residents of the FTSE and the NASDAQ, mm -hmm. um, not just the ones that are currently in it. And so, so yeah, so I joined to help build Emerge, it was called, which is the department mm -hmm. for really scale-ups, I would say, at yeah. Edelman. Um, and I mean, Edelman's brand value is really strong. And so as soon as people started to learn that we were doing PR for startups and scale-ups, mm -hmm had like the full gamut of companies come through the door oh, and wow. so i would have re i'd have really really interesting days where you talk with the you know the founder of a pre-seed stage startup in the morning mm -hmm. and then the you know cmo or the head of comms or corporate comms at a you know, listed company in the afternoon mm -hmm. um that was looking to do a crisis strategy or internal reporting or something similar mm -hmm. um now I'd naturally the smaller companies were too small to work with. And so we would always refer them down into really, really good freelancers where we thought they'd be the right fit mm -hmm. uh, in the right vertical that were good yeah. at content writing or good at strategy or boutique agencies. Sometimes if there was a specific niche that we thought were really good. Mm -hmm. um, but I always had founders especially would come back yeah. and they'd be like, this is great. Thanks for the introduction. But at the same time, we still don't want to spend, you know, three, four or five K a month on a mm -hmm. freelancer. Yeah. We have a content manager in house, or we've got a, you know, uh, somebody who's in charge of operations or in charge of marketing. Do you have a platform we can build on top of and use the knowledge? We, you know, we can, we've got the time, just not the knowledge of how to do it. Um, do you have anything? Do you have a resource base? Do you have a platform? And obviously we didn't have one. Yeah. Um, And so I left, I left to build the thing that startup founders and, and CMOs, especially at smaller startups were asking mm -hmm. for. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where it got started. So, I mean, the starting point, to be honest, was to look at the broad spectrum of things that happens currently in a traditional press office. Mm -hmm. uh, press offices, um, 
essentially what you would set up for a company within an agency. It's usually three or four people working on a specific account, monitoring the news and seeing what's being written, looking for opportunities where they can get their company into the press, get their client into the press, mm-hmm. sending announcements, um, you know, the glamorous side of, you know, funding announcements and whatnot, placing like what we would term like thought leadership articles or articles on from like a specific person within that, within that company. And so I looked at all of the things that we already did from like a gold standard approach at Edelman and then worked out what of those we could automate. Um, and just took them on one by one. Um, so we built something super crappy initially. Um, <laughs> it always is, isn't it? The first, the first product is always crappy, but that, that's part of the experience. Uh, our first product was a notion page, um, okay. which we sold for 40 pounds a month. Um, nice. yep. And then our first ever client, um, actually to this day, don't know how they found us. Um, they were inbound from God knows where, okay. um, they, yeah, we, we worked with them a month. And then I think at the end of the first month, they said, um, they said, oh yes, we, we don't think we're paying you enough. Um, we'd like to double what we're currently paying you. So then we made, we, we literally, okay. we doubled, we doubled revenues in our first month. So you went from, from 40, 40 pounds to 80 pounds. To $80 per month? 40 to 80 pounds a month, not the even dollars. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, revenues grew by 200%. Nice. Um, it's a good step. Which is obviously, that's, yeah, it's always really the way that, obviously. <laughs> and then I think revenues grew by 300% the following month, mm-hmm. as they always do in those early days. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. And so we, it was just a notion page basically. Um, and then after that, we yeah built a very basic MVP. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, at the time it was, well, it was 2021. And I think the UK government were giving out, well, I say giving out is probably maybe not quite the right term, but they were, mm-hmm. they created the bounce back loans. Um, yes. and so for some context at the time, I have a lot of a lot, lot of my friends and peers were working in VC already, mm-hmm. um, and one of my my best friends um, was was working at um, yeah a, a really well known fund in Europe, and he said, yeah. um, you know, this was the height of uh, the height of the moment where money was super cheap, and he was like, don't worry, we'll create a prototype, we'll like basically set up a bunch of conversations with VCs, okay. um, they'll basically say yes to this, um, and then you can raise two million at you know a ten million valuation and go and build the prototype. And I was that like, is that sounds cool. Enough. That, sounds, that like- sounds great. Let's do that. Um, and of course, we went to start to speak with VCs. Mm-hmm. And most of the VCs, especially in like UK and Europe, don't really have operating backgrounds. And many of them were from banking. And so they've mm-hmm. never really touched a marketing department before, let alone a PR department. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, I'm sorry, like, what is this? And what's the TAM? And <laughs> yeah. you know, all of this. So like the TAM was always the question, funnily enough, you know, now that we had decent revenues, I don't get asked the TAM question anymore, but there you go. Um, but so, so, so we basically tried to try to raise money and most VCs just came back and were like, yeah, market's really tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, do you know how big it is? And they're like, obviously yeah. no, um, but it's not worth doing the research. Um, Interesting. And so weren't able to raise. And then, so I was like, okay, solid, we'll bootstrap. Um, mm-hmm. And fortunately this bounce back loan kind of arrived at the same time because I'd been freelancing for um, six, seven years, even when I was at agencies, I was a freelancer. Yeah. Um, I had revenues from 2019. And of course, so, you could borrow up to 25% of those revenues. Tom, just explain to so, so, so the bounce back loan was something that the UK oh, government sorry. did during COVID. 
right? Where yes. you would give out loans for existing businesses so they could literally bounce back uh, and, you know, keep on, keep on playing where, wherever they were playing and, and keep on in business. So just a, exactly. Just a to that. It, it was designed to support British businesses. Um, and I think it did. I think it, 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 it did, yeah. saved a lot of British businesses for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, during, during COVID. Um, but I took a loan out against my consulting company off the back of that mm -hmm. and loaned it across, uh, to MVPR, create a new business. And then we spent 15 grand on the first MVP. Yeah. Um, I got a freelance developer who's now my lead engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, and we built something super crappy and sold it and then built something slightly better and sold it. And as I said, we kind of like looked at the different, um, yeah, looked at the different parts, the different mm -hmm. like activities you do within the PR, within the press office. And we just began to automate them one, one by one. Um, just to jump now, in really quickly on, on that one, it's, it's really impressive. As you said, you, you built it, you, you grew it. But I think the big question now is back in 2021, when this money was available, people were kind of spending willy-nilly willy and investing. How would you say it compares to now? Because every time we, we look online on LinkedIn or other areas, there's a lot of business consultants or startup gurus saying, bootstrap your business. Don't go straight for VC funding. VC funding is... <laughs> It's not as good as it seems. Would you say that's that's still the advice you would give now, or is it kind of completely different? If you were to raise, uh, I'll, now. I'll have I'll have to be careful because we we have got VC funding, so I uh, I'll have to. No, I'll, to be honest, um, in hindsight, we were really lucky that we mm -hmm. weren't able to raise as early as we did. Not least, we got incredibly good terms when we did raise because we were cash positive, yeah. and so and that was really attractive. We could never have predicted this was going to happen with the market, though. So, um, you know, we could have also easily been in a situation where um, VCs were more focused on growth than they were on 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 cash positivity or or on runway. And so, um, when we, you know, it it was just a thing that we had to do. Um, I think that having bootstrapped in the way that we did, it meant that we were we kept i mean we had i mean we still do we just we have this uh this culture of having a ton of customer feedback um mm -hmm. which meant that we planned our, our like our product very very carefully and we were really really capital efficient because we Plus had to give away so um, much equity as well if, especially having some sort of basis or mvp you're you're in the driving seat and that's also really crucial to a lot of people and um, would you say being in the driving seat right now to our listeners is probably one of the best things to be rather than going to a VC with an idea or an angel investor with an idea who's most likely going to say, I want 50 or 25% and take all your, all your equity and shares away. Is, this, is that, is it, is it best to bootstrap? I think that if you're speaking with VCs that are looking to take 50%, you should run a mile um, because <laughs> there is, <laughs> uh, there's no, there's no money that's worth giving up 50% of your business. Um, mm -hmm. I think that honestly, I, I think it depends on the business. Um, for us, for example, we were able and have and continue to be able to support um, the PR process that we've automated with people. Mm -hmm. And for our business, that's that's been fantastic and actually necessary as well. Sometimes people just want to hand it over and say, okay, go and run with it. Mm -hmm. I think for like, you know, incredibly either like technologically heavy or research heavy businesses, doing what we did is not an option. Um, okay you you sort of especially like you know university spin outs or like deep tech businesses it's difficult to build a, a really yeah. defensible solution without taking vc funding um and so i think it totally depends on the business and then i think it depends on the vc um 
I mean, yeah, obviously, if you've got a VC that's offering you terms at, at 50%, you shouldn't do that. But um, uh, even at 25%, I would say, like, you shouldn't do that either. Um, but, you know, it's a generalization. Um, it, it depends. It totally depends on the situation you're in. But there are good VCs and bad VCs. Um, we're really lucky. Our VC is fantastic. Um, and... Tom, I was, just, I was just wondering, how do you go, how do you go about in finding these VCs in the first place? Because I think that's something a lot of the founders that we, we speak with kind of struggle with. Because there are, you know, endless spreadsheets with millions and millions of, not millions, but a couple thousand contacts. But how do you find the right match, right? It's a bit like, you know, going on Tinder and trying to find the, the perfect match. It's, it's a bit of a nightmare, isn't it? So what tips can you give, you know, our listeners and, you know, how to find a perfect match? So honestly, um... I think it's a it's really a relationship game. Um, for us personally, um, we didn't look to raise VC money, money, but um, mm -hmm. we were very lucky that some of our existing angel investors had really strong relationships with um, the uh, what the basically the VC that en ended up backing us. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of inherent trust there because um, the angel investor that recommended the VC, I trust implicitly, mm -hmm. and naturally there's trust between the vc and the angel investor they're not going to recommend companies for them that are, are like aren't going to be good and so i would say if if, if i was going to take a step-by-step -step approach and look back on it build a network of really strong operators as mentors and advisors straight away yeah. so re reach like identify really strong operators from the different um I think of it like different parts of the business. Mm -hmm. I have amazing mentors that have been with me since like pre-product mm -hmm. that are, you know, heads of product design at major, major companies. And they just helped me because I don't know why sometimes they helped me because I was, you know, they're interested in what I was building or, mm -hmm. you know, they had an hour free on a Friday afternoon and I like, I would have a call with them every day, uh, yeah. every, every week, sorry. And we would go back to basics on product, like product design, development, how to think about user, like user experience and user journeys, um, looking at um, how to set up, like, you know, in really boring stuff, like, yeah. um, you know, how to set up like recruiting so that it's a scalable process. And so that you can think about it over time, like look for leaders that are leading departments in large companies mm -hmm. um, They're really, really good at that and reach out to them. So what if it's cold and you can say, hey, look, I'm you know, really impressed by your career. I think there's a lot I can learn from you. I would love to pick your brains on like X or Y. And worst case scenario, they tell you that like Fox or Oscar and right. And yeah. Um, <laughs> and and uh, yeah. And you go on to somebody else who does have the time to mm -hmm. build those relationships really, really early on with those kinds of mentors. Um, I think everyone obviously always hears the advice ask for advice, not for money or not for investment. Mm -hmm. But if you do it early enough, it's genuine, right? Like I wasn't looking for money yeah. at that stage. I was, I was genuinely looking for advice, people that could help me improve the way that I was going to run the business. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, then, you know, then they're bought in. And what happens when you have really strong mentors or operators who know what it's like to maybe run like, you know, department a large business or even run their own businesses, mm -hmm. their network is better than yours. So, you know, When it comes to raising angel investment, they're already bought in with you because they're talking with you for you know half an hour every week. They know mm -hmm. what the challenges are. They're emotionally supportive as well as like you know supportive from a network perspective, and they'll make introductions for you. And you know the, the yeah I would say like the best thing about that like network effect is 
you know, with every person you, with every degree you go away from that first introducer, you kind of get like closer and closer to pe some people who will be really interested mm -hmm. because your whole network is curating that net, like th th those relationships for you. And so that's how we grew our kind of network of, I would say mentors initially. And then mm -hmm. we grew them into a network of angels um, because we then raised angel fund funding. And I would say that I'm, my angels aren't going to enjoy this, but every, every now and again, yeah. every now and again, you come across what I would term to be like a golden potato. So a golden potato, right? Tell, tell us yeah, more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I don't know if anyone's ever dug up potatoes, but I have. And usually what happens when you dig potatoes up is you find one and then you find that there's like, there's a potato that's like, doesn't look that interesting that okay. actually is attached to like hundreds of other potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then once you start pulling them out, you're like, oh, wow, there's actually, there's way more in here than I even possibly imagined. I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm, I'm going to have potatoes for like months. Um, <laughs> and for me, that is finding a golden potato. So you, you, there are, there are angels out there that exist that are fantastic people and amazing mentors. Mm -hmm. um, and once you have brought them over, they introduce you to a whole range of network. Um, range of people and I've literally joined calls with angel investors who are mine now mm -hmm. where in fact roughly about the same time this this time last year I jumped on a call with somebody who uh, and like their video comes up and they were like right so cool um, Marcus is in so I'm in I just wanted to check that you're an, like an okay person um, but like let's spend the next half an hour getting to know each other and 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 I was like oh cool okay awesome and <laughs> And that's what happens. And, and what then happens after that is when you do come to a stage where you want to raise VC funding, mm -hmm. all of those angels will, some of them anyway, will be LPs in those funds. So they will, the LP, they'll be limited partners. They'll be, they'll have invested in funds as a way mm -hmm. to expand their, diversify their, their own investments. And so those introductions are then worth their weight in gold because you have, you know, you have an, basically an investor in a fund who's telling the fund, you should look at this company. Yeah. Um, that I've written an angel check for. Um, so that's how I kind of view it. If you're going to start from the ground, mm -hmm. you don't have any uh, network, like a, a connections with VCs already. That's how I would do it. Just ask for advice. Tom, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, uh, I don't want to know the exact figure, but let's say your startup and you want to raise a very small amount, let's say 100K. I mean, this mm -hmm. is quite feasible to do, right? Just asking for people, you know, are you interested in, in, in joining the, the startup? What do you think about, about the amounts? Because there is a difference between, I guess, raising in the US, raising in the UK, raising in Europe. How do you navigate all, all these differences? Yeah, with difficulty. Um, mm -hmm. So raising for us personally, um, I've had these kinds of conversations recently with, um, with some of our angels. Um, we are creating a new category of product and European investors inherently are wary of that mm -hmm. um, in a way that US investors are not. Yeah. Um, and so if, I think, again, it depends on the type of company you are, if you're creating a new category or you're doing something that is wildly kind of out of the box, yeah. um, outside the box, then the U S could be a better place for you to do that than the UK or Europe. Mm -hmm. That said, there are phenomenal investors everywhere. Um, and raising a hundred K specifically, um, yeah, you could do with 10 angel checks, um, I think mm -hmm. generally what, what you find or what we found anyway, we did do a hundred K raise in uh, December, 2021. Um, mm -hmm. 
that was, I think, seven or eight people in total. Okay. Um, and it was one large check from one angel investor um, and then mm. lots of smaller ones. And to be honest, at that stage, I was really thinking about what's the network of these people? What, what's their, like, what, what are they going to contribute? Mm-hmm. And then how do I drive them really hard? How do I get the most out of them? And actually, yeah. we took investment at like, I think we even took some, I think we, the smallest check I think we took at that round was 5K. But I, I would go down to like 2K for the mm-hmm. right investor that's going to unlock a lot. Um, you know, I think the most important thing, the most important thing is, is, is it's financially, you know, economically meaningful to them. Um, mm-hmm. If it's a meaningful, meaningful amount of money to them, they're going to be bought in. Um, Obviously, there are thresholds that it's probably pretty unwise that you go under as you kind of scale. But then, you know, if you want to give somebody equity, find a different way to get get them bought into the company that doesn't necessarily have to be from equity. Um, but what to come back the, to your question about, what, sorry, what would, the, what would be the other ways of uh, letting them buy into the company that's not equity? Oh, you, you give them advisory shares. Um, if you find like a really really high high net, like maybe not high net worth, but a really high high value. Um, some like yeah a person that you want to turn into a mentor that you want to have their advice on your product um there's a great um uh, on i think founders institute has a fantastic template for um uh yeah founder uh, like a founder advisory and like uh, equity um use that um and and yeah obviously don't give away very much i wouldn't ever recommend giving away you know like employee level equity to advisors especially as um you also need to keep tabs on exactly how much they contribute to your business and where the value is. Um, but yeah, I would do it like that. We have done it like that. Interesting. Okay. Cause there's always, I guess when, when there's a wheel, there's a way, right. And uh, it's funny how, how you told us all these stories about navigating just investment. Cause I think that's, that's something that a lot of companies struggle, but let me ask you something else. What about the first hire? Because you built something in Ocean, you had, you know, your lead developer building something, your MVP, and how do you scale things up? I mean, cause that, that's a quite complicated process, isn't it? Because you need to get feedback from your existing customers, but you also need to think about how am I going to build this from scratch? What actually makes sense to develop? So how do you go about creating, you know, developing the, the idea even more? So, I mean, to be honest, I I already worked with um, the developer that I, I brought in as a freelancer mm-hmm. um, and it was super scrappy. Um, initially, it was literally just his salary. He worked three days a week to start with um, mm-hmm. and then he went up to five um and then we just hired as we were able to um you know it sounds really basic but you know we we started to make more money and i was kind of beginning to think okay like you know who can we hire that's cheap (laughs) enough or on a flexible enough basis that we can like still add to the team um and to be honest it kind of happens a little bit naturally um in terms of the way that we built the product um I mean, effectively, we just, as I said, we kind of just took the different pillars that I knew that we needed, the, mm-hmm. like different pillars of activity I knew we needed, and we began to automate one after another. And the, the, by virtue of doing that, we, by automating processes that were previously done by people, yeah. we allowed ourselves to take on more clients. And mm-hmm. so uh, I did maybe one or two things that made a real difference for us. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I hired out of um, other places, not just the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hired out of Spain, for example, um, very, very good technical talent, um, mm-hmm. like very, like they, like people work, work well together. Um, mm-hmm. and they're a lot cheaper. I would say they are. So 
for, for devs, we probably pay 70% of the cost of a developer in the UK on oh, average. That is a big huge, difference. Huge, huge difference. Right. Um, and I would say for early stage companies trying to bootstrap their way to cash positivity, yeah, mm-hmm. benefit your, like benefit from the skills arbitrage that you get by working with people who are um, like in regions that are just less expensive to live. Um, so we hired from all over Europe. Um, and I'm so glad that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've got fantastic talent. Um, and uh, yeah, by virtue of kind of the way that we collaborate, it's it's really, really successful. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you, you can always improve it, but really happy with the way that we develop product. Um, and it's meant the whole mentality is super lean. Um, good, yeah. You know, we don't spend money when we don't need to. Um, we're very, very critical about what we do spend money on and whether or not it's actually pointing towards our sort of like North Star metric mm-hmm. or the metrics that we know are driving growth within the business. Um, and then we'll make bets on which ones we think are going to mo- move those metrics the most. Um, I think that that's always something that people are a bit cautious about is do we go and hire internationally or do we just stick to our local market? But reality is nowadays, everyone is kind of used to working remotely as it is. So if you can't find the talent at the price you want in the place you're in, why not hire it somewhere else? And they can they still deliver and it's still the same working methodology and people are kind of used to working remotely, isn't it? Because I can work remotely remotely in London and I get paid a London salary, or I can work remotely in Valencia, Spain, where you are right now, and I get paid, you know, a Valencia salary, which is a little bit lower, uh, plus much better weather. Um, so it's uh, everyone's happy, right? Yeah, and I, I think that um, I think lots of different people are having are having are talking about you know whether they should, you should go back to work, be in an office, mm-hmm. but I think it depends on the function. Um, if you know the function of you, if, if if for developers, for example, where actually they really benefit from being able to go into deep work um, mm-hmm. and, you know, realistically, they need a check in at the beginning of the day. They need to be able to check in very easily if they get blocked so that mm-hmm. like your team can unblock each other. They need a, like a, a clear understanding of like where you're going, and what the customer wants. Mm-hmm. And then you can check, you know, in at the end of every week or every sprint to talk about, you know, blockers, how to work better, how to improve. And that's that can be done. That can be totally done remotely. I think if yeah. for us, for example, for our customer success team, so mm-hmm. this is the team that supports with strategy, advisory, mm-hmm. uh, copywriting sometimes, um, like advice for CMOs on how to do PR really well, and then sometimes do it for them as well. Um, it benefits those teams to come together um, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of shared knowledge that you can have in an office um, where you just, you know, literally turn to somebody on your right and say, what do you think of this? I Like, can you explain this process to me? Or mm-hmm. alternatively, um, I was just thinking about doing like doing this, like you did this last week. Can you just quickly explain yeah. it? And that is that's that kind of like knowledge sharing is essential because that kind of thing doesn't really happen on Slack. It's no, 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 it's, yeah. it's hard, especially not if you've got like junior people and senior people. Um, you know, junior people might try and like muddle something out themselves before they reach out, whereas in person it's, it's less likely because you can just it seems a lot more informal. Um, exactly, and so I think it depends on the function to be honest. Um, but I would highly encourage people to hire from around Europe if you can. Mm-hmm. There are now, you know, if you want, also if you want to have employees, there are, like, thanks to the pandemic, you know, companies like Omnipresent and, you know, Deal and Remote and who make that easy for you to do. Um, yeah. Why not? Why not? It's a good, it's a good thing. It's a good say. Tom, let me, let me ask you something um, I'm super curious about. 
can you tell us your worst day ever in the company? That day or just said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit this. I, I've had enough. I'm, you know, today's the day. I, that's it. Tell us your like worst day and your your best day in the company, you know, the, the high and the lows. Because I think people want to hear that. How do you get from, you know, the lowest moment to the highest moment? And how does that journey kind of looks like? I know this is like three questions in one. I'm just curious to know that. I'll start with the lowest moment. Um, <clears throat> I, I, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment. I've not yet got to the stage where I was like, sod this, I'm just going to quit. Yeah. Um, I think that it's always, it, it's you, you're always balanced. I mean, honestly, what I do whenever I have I mean, those kind, like say you have a conversation with a VC and they tell you that what you're building is not valuable mm -hmm. and uh, they don't think it's going to be like significant or whatever. Um, usually what I do then in those moments is I call a customer and I'm like, Hey, look, can you just talk me through the experience um, here? Or can you talk me through some of your pain points? And usually what happens after that is I listen to the problems they have and I'm like, cool. Like I know what we need to build or actually we solve a lot of this or, mm. you know, I, I find that the bad and the good rather than it being like, like by day or like, it's usually hour by hour. Mm -hmm. So like usually it's, you know, something really shitty happens. Um, and, uh, yeah, I know an investor says no, or, um, someone that you're really keen for, or we've had an investor pull out of a deal, for example, um, mm. having said that they were in like, those are crappy days. Yeah. But usually what happens is like somehow the ether knows that, and mm -hmm. then they'll send you a like prospect who is totally inbound and you'll take the call, even though you're feeling like death and like that you want to call up and like mm -hmm. go and get a hug from like, you know. My, my girlfriend or whatever um and then someone will join the call and be like oh yeah this is amazing i love the products like you know and then in those moments you just think ah oh, cool yeah perfect like we're still doing the right thing just keep going like one foot in front of the other for a really long time and you'll get there mm -hmm. um but the worst day we had a pretty bad day recently to be fair um <laughs> where it wasn't the worst day to be fair i mean it's, it's hard it's, i think humans in general we're not very good at remembering really bad stuff, especially founders who are like inherently yeah. optimistic. Exactly. So, so unless you track it day to day, you kind of think it has like a shorter memory than like, you know, corporates, I think. Um, I think my memory for this really, really negative stuff is probably about six weeks. Um, <laughs> we had a critical bug in the platform two weeks ago um, that, uh, yeah, meant that our cloud function sent a lot more emails than it was supposed to because it okay. broke. And... And so that was super embarrassing um, for, yeah, for us. Um, but actually it also pointed towards the fact that it was a really critical feature because about 70% of our customers complained that it wasn't live. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were like, oh, actually this is crap and awful, but at the same time, uh, really good because now we know what to focus on. Um, and now we know what to improve and what our customers are using the most in our platform. Um, so that was a bad day for sure. But followed by a good one inevitably um so what would be your, uh, your main driver if you if you don't mind me asking before you go into your really good one what's your driver in doing the startup is it money is it fame is it to create something to try to change the world or just have something where you can kind of work and avoid being in the the corporate life cycle i say the, the rat race what would be a driver as well when you go towards your your really good point sounds like i might need to ask you what your driver is harry i think maybe i know um, <laughs> um this change, um, to be honest. Yeah. I think if you look at the industry that we're in, um, 
it's one of the last like bastions of uh traditional like yeah legacy manual approaches mm-hmm. um there are there's been almost no innovation in this industry for 20 years because all of the major players in it um that began or begin to do something interesting get bought um there are like there are like three main acquirers in this industry and they just buy up companies whenever they begin to look like they're doing something interesting. Um, and they either try and incorporate them into what they're already doing or they shut them down. Mm-hmm. And so it's meant that there's been a massive stagnation of innovation in it. And because I worked in it for nine years before I started this, mm-hmm. um, it's really annoying. It's, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, and so, yeah, the ambition is, just to change it from top to bottom the way that you know when was the last time you spoke with someone who was like i love my pr agency (laughs) they are you know the best thing that ever happened to my business they don't pr has an incredibly bad name like people you know whoever you speak to always had a negative story uh, of at least once of some crappy pr agency they worked with that you know took 40k off them in like you know four months and they didn't see any roi off the back of that Mm -hmm. um wouldn't it be nice if you know you worked for an industry where people were like wow like how efficient is it? The ROI is amazing. Like if you work with these kinds of companies, like, you know, the yeah. value is like really tangible. Um, so and if a big player I'd love to change that along. perception. So if a big player came along and offered you a very big check, would you take it? Or would you say, no, I want to change the world. I want to keep on continuing and revolutionizing this industry. And, and I want to be you one day. What would you do? If a big player came, came along and was interested enough to put an offer on the table, I'd know that we were getting to them and that they were, that, yeah, they were afraid that we were going to take their clients off them. Um, and so, yeah, I would say no. Like, I mean, the exit for us is an IPO ultimately. Um, nice. That's, that's what I can foresee. Um, and I think, I think we'll get there. We just have to keep just doing what we're doing. Um, That'll be why your really, future like, days. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, to be honest, I think that the, the best days are, um the the best days are when you you see clients when you see customers use the product that you imagined um but those those are literally the best moments where you push a new feature um that you know okay it's you know it's been you've you produced it and implemented it based on a bunch of customer feedback you've also done it based on you know the vision that i had for for what i wanted to build and when the vision becomes a reality and so Tuesdays are the days we push up product, product updates to our platform. And so mm-hmm. I love Tuesdays because on Tuesdays we get to see the, you know, basically the, the devs drop all of the loom videos for like what they've built and the changes they've made. Um, mm-hmm. And I love those days because those are the days when obviously you see the, the, the tech moving forward. Um, but the, the best days are, yeah, of all are when the users that you design them for actually like use the product in the way that you designed it without needing your help. Um, nice. And then yeah. you see the metrics on the back end jump. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. We're like, we're getting closer. Like with every step you get closer to something that fulfills the entire need of, of your customer. Um, so th- those are the, are the best days. Um, or the, yeah. The best moments. Um, so yours is more about customer retention, similar to, to the Bezos approach about, it doesn't matter what I do as long as the customer is happy. If I keep the customer happy, they stay longer, they spend more. And I can, you know, what they say, it's, it's more expensive to go out and win a new customer. Is, is that kind of the, the approach you take as well? 
keep them happy, really make sure happy. they get a streamless process. I'll never turn down being compared to Jeff Bezos. Um, <laughs> I think you got a little bit going, more. Harry. I think so. I don't know about the boat for situation. Now, for now. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, the boat situation is not the same. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, helicopter, the helicopter situation also not the same. Mm. Um, sadly, we'll get there. Um, but I mean, surely every, 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 every business, um, if you're not listening to your customers, then you're going to die straight as. Um, if you're, you know, the faster you can get product into your customers' hands, the better, even if it's crap. Um, so what? Like, let them complain about it. Um, if they don't complain about it, they don't care enough to complain. And if, if like that's not happening, then like they don't care enough about your product and they won't stay. Um, but yeah. Point, yeah, that's very true, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I got a question because I, I found this happens a lot. How do you, because I know of a lot of companies and what they do is they build this imaginary product that they think is going to be amazing. And then they go to the market and then the market says, well, actually it's a product, but it has none of the features we're looking for. So how do you bridge this gap between building something endlessly out of, you know, your own ideas of what the market needs or, you know, we're actually saying, Hey market, can you help me? Can you, can you give me some feedback? How do you bridge this gap and how do you make sure that this is all very organic, very smooth, very responsive, this process? I think most, most, most founders tend to not push products because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, many people will say it's because that, you know, they, they want it to be perfect when it reaches your customer's hands or, yeah. you know, because they're a perf- perfectionist and that's what it is, but it's not, it's just because they're afraid of somebody using it and, and not being, and not working. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, like spending, spending time on that is a sunk cost that you're, you're never going to get back um, because mm-hmm. no customer is ever going to like log onto your platform and be like, wow, this is incredible. This does everything, you know, I, I had dreamed of and more, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're, if you're a startup um because every like you know not not only that like there are probably lots of different kinds of people you can sell to and the requirements of those people will be slightly different Mm -hmm. and so you're not even going to know that you're selling to the right people before you've you've you know got the product in their hands i would say the the way to avoid doing that is don't build tech um start with you know most products i find the mvp of them can be distilled into something that is probably built on like platforms that already exist you know mm-hmm. there's a reason that zapier exists like i mean zapier exists for a lot more than that but yeah. if you can't like piece together uh, a crappy bootstrap mvp on zapier um which will literally connect you connect like thousands of tools together mm-hmm. um then yeah you're probably wasting money like s- spending on something that like shouldn't be built with the yeah. caveat obviously that if you're doing something in like I don't know, deep learn, like yeah, machine learning, for example, yeah. or, or something else, but you're still going to have an end customer, um, mm-hmm. you know, machine learning or, or AI, for example, can be replicated by us basically. And so mm-hmm. really all you need to create an AI platform is, you know, I don't know, an email, for example, say you wanted mm-hmm. to create a, for us, for example, we, we are automating how people create content. Um, a, you know, mechanical Turk version of that would be to have, a window where people say, I want to draft a press release. And then we'd say it takes 24 hours for this, you know, this AI to turn this press release around. Um, They give us the content in there. We go where we write it um, ourselves and we post it back through and then either it adds value to the customer or it doesn't. They think, they think whether it's AI, whether it's AI or not, doesn't matter if they think it is. And then that's, and 
then they come back and be like, oh, the, you know, the AI is not very good. And, uh, you know, the press release it's created is actually not on message and all the rest of it. But yeah. so what they complain, um, you know, we know that we need to get, you know, a new writer or I need to improve the way that I write press releases um, or like take, take into account their messaging in a better way. But then you already have validation that they're interested in using an AI writer, right? Yeah. Um, and so I would say, generally speaking, if you want to avoid spending tons of money on a product that no one's ever going to use, um, don't build tech first, just hack it together. Um, <laughs> and then, like, yeah, share that, get the intent. Um, and that's where you'll get your first fans as well, I, I think. Um that's super valuable because most most people just want to overcomplicate things. They say, "Oh, we need to hire, you know, ten developers to build this. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to work, and so forth, and so on." But actually, you know, we're hearing it from you. You have a successful company, and you're just saying, "Look, build something scrappy, something that kind of works well together, and then see where you can, you know, add tech to it afterwards." Right? We we did. I I did this first with my first company. Mm -hmm. um, my first company was. Uh, We built that in 2016, 2015. It was an advertising tech and analytics company. Um, yeah. we, we built real world games uh, using image recognition. Um, and yeah, my perspective back then, as naive as I was, was yeah, let's build something really cool that people will use. Um, and so what did we do? We, we started by building tech. Um, and of course, off the back of that, um, mm -hmm. We built something that, yeah, people did use a bit, but it didn't solve like a really deep customer need. Um, mm. And so fortunately, we didn't spend too much money building it. Um, but yeah, we took the latter approach, which is build something really good, get it into the hands of customers um, and then learn, right? It's, just, yeah. it's still about learning. It's still about getting that customer feedback. It's just that you want to get that customer feedback when it's good, not mm -hmm. when it's crap. Yeah. Um, and actually you know, nearly always the most valuable thing that you can do is you put something in a, in a customer's hands that gives them the semblance of what you want to build. And they mm -hmm. go, why is this here? Or like, this doesn't make any sense. Like what I really want to do or what I wish this would do is yeah. this. And they're like, oh, perfect. Thanks very much. We'll go and build that thing. And then you build like a crappy version of that or just a mock-up even. Mm -hmm. um, and then you put it back in their hand and they go, oh, yeah, okay, interesting. I can see what you're doing here, but like this doesn't really work. And actually I'd, I'd rather have this. Um, And, and and like that, you'll build something for, it, probably, it might not be the thing you imagined, but you'll build something people will use. Yeah, that makes a big difference, isn't it? You're listening to direct market feedback and yeah. you're building it for the market you have, which makes you know a world of difference, right? If you open a, a restaurant and everyone around you is a vegan, you probably want to serve vegan food and not trying to you know push some meat into them because it's not going to work well, right? So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, look, I think... Um, There's a there's a difference between I think one of the thing one of the things that's really hard often mm -hmm. is balancing building the vision versus building what your customers say they want. Yeah. And there's obviously the, the famous adage from you know Henry Ford, which is you know everyone just wants faster horses. Um, <laughs> is is tr yeah. it's true, right? Um, oftentimes, if you listen listen to your customers too much, um, or just build the things that they ask for um, mm -hmm. without really understanding why they're asking for them. Um, you'll just end up, you know, trying to breed faster horses um, rather than building the automobile. Um, so there's a balance to be had, but for sure, mm. yeah, build so something much. super crappy first, like hack it together and try and have customers before you've got a product. Um, mm. So as we come to the end of the podcast, and it's, it's been a great conversation and, and having you on board with us, Tom, giving us an insight into, as you said, customer focus, learning, education, 
making sure that you build this network of mentors and facilitators to help you grow and develop and, and also help you along the way, as well as not giving away too much equity. The question that we would like to end with is essentially... That's key, where, I would say. Where, where don't would you do don't, don't, oh, Sorry? Sorry. Don't, don't give away too much equity early on, would be my <laughs> humble advice. Not least, there'll be a red flag on cap tables as you get to later stages. So don't give away um, 50%. Ever. <laughs> don't yeah, I think um yeah, we'll never give away fifty yeah. percent. Um I would never say yeah. but where would you see yourself in five years? Where would you see MVPR going? Where would you see yourself? Would you still be have your IPO and moving along or would you be trying to fight the big corporates or get your buyout? Where where would you see yourself? Or where would you like to see yourself? Yeah, I think in five years five years time is a long time away. Um I think the there are going to be so many things that change in the next five years. Um, uh, you know, one, the media landscape is going to change. Um, it's already changing. You know, the way that we consume news now is very different to the way we consume news a year ago or two years ago. You've got the rise of, you know, smaller, um, like, you know, Substack, Medium, et cetera. Um, people are self-publishing. The way that you receive or like or yeah view news articles in the first place they tend to come in via whatsapp you might see them on instagram um they might come in from newsletters or because someone sees an article and recommends it and sends you an email that's um got the link in it so the way that we are consuming news is massively changing which naturally means that the way that the pr world will work will massively change too um i think that PR agencies as they exist right now will no longer exist in three or four years time. I think that, you know, if I look at the way that GPT is moving forward, um, look at, look at how far it has come in the last six months. This is mm -hmm. a product that launched, you know, like in That's what November, December last year and look, yeah. look at the advancements in, 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 in AI content generation. Um, you know, at the same time you've got, um, you know, companies that are looking at voice regeneration mm -hmm. um, off the back of yeah, uh, of AI or, or practicing or like tra training on a single person's voice. And so the way that content as a whole is developing means that a lot of these agencies that aren't even remotely technologically enabled mm -hmm. will die, um, especially the smaller ones, I think, that won't be able to anchor onto larger like consulting consultancy-based contracts. Um, but I think the way that the news outlets are also set up will drastically change because you'll need fewer journalists to write higher quality articles. Mm -hmm. Newsrooms will have AI in them. So yeah. the newsrooms themselves will be uh, sourcing content from APIs rather than from people. Um, and so uh, it's, you know, it's impossible to say whether we'll be at IPO or whether, you know, we'll be you know in front of private equity at that stage, but, I think that will be driving that change. We'll be forcing um, you know, agencies will either have adopted us, adopted us, or 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 not, and may lo no longer exist, or have adopted something similar. Mm -hmm. um, I think companies will be doing a lot more of their own PR um, for much much longer um, in a tech supported or tech enabled way. Mm -hmm. um, I think the marketing agencies will also be offering PR as well, which they current few of them currently do. Mm -hmm. um, also in its kind of tech-enabled way. Um, and the way that readers consume the news will also be, uh, yeah, significantly changed.
and I think that we have the opportunity to drive a lot of that um, and turn news from news distribution anyway from something that is currently pretty manual where it's not mm -hmm. on our platform into something that could be even programmatic um, and where you're actually, I mean, imagine, for example, you're reading a news article in five years time that is talking about climate change and the examples that you have in your article are examples from floods in London because that's where you're based. But the examples I have in my article, which is effectively the same, are floods or thunderstorms in Valencia because that's where I'm currently. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of personalization of the news is going to be possible. Um, and that's what I think will drive. Uh, I think that's that's what people will perceive the most. Um, but I sort of plan to do that in a quite a quiet way. I want to seep into, yeah, I want to get into all of the verticals um, and be the company that everyone uses, but a lot of people maybe haven't heard of. Because um, mm. ultimately for us anyway, it's about uh, making sure that our clients are the ones um, that are in the news um, and making sure that journalists and, and publications and subsequently readers have the most relevant news for them. Um, so hopefully it's a, yeah, it's a quiet but rapid growth. So, sounds good. Um, Tom, if people want to find you and find your company, can you know just tell us how they can find you? What's the best way to reach out to you? Uh, feel free to plug in as much as you want uh, out of your company. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, and look, thanks for having me on. Um, I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, yeah, if you want to find more about MVPR, um, you can go to mvpr.io um, and put your email into the window we have there. Uh, you can do that and have mm -hmm. a demo of the platform with myself um, or with one of my team, but probably with me. Um, or you can reach out to me. My email is tom at mvpr.io. Um, and you can hit me up on Twitter as well if you're interested um, or on LinkedIn. Uh, you can follow the company. Um, totally up to you. Um, but yeah, always open. Thank you very much. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining the Innovation Conversation. It's been quite insightful. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. All right, thank you. Thank now you, Rolf.